morning to you. As my name tag indicates, my name is Matt as well. Um, I've met many of you, but I know there are many here who I have not, and it would be a real joy um, to have the chance to meet you if we've not yet done that. So uh, if you're new here or if you've been here many weeks or months and just we've never had a chance to meet, I'm going to try to make my way to the back of the space by the end of the service. Would love to get a chance to uh, shake your hand and greet you um, this morning. If you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, page 960 is where that's at if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles. We are closing the series out today, even though we're not at the end of the letter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you've been with us uh, in the past, we spent a lot of time in different parts of 1 Corinthians 15 over the summer in our Apostles' Creed series, so I would encourage you to go back and, and re-engage with those parts uh, of the Scripture. And we'll just have to leave chapter 16 to, uh, to a future day. We're going to move into a, a different series next week as we get into um, the season of Advent. So we'll close out today in, uh, in chapter 14. Last week, uh, we looked at 1 Corinthians 13 about this more excellent way of love and our really our, our need to pursue that with one another and in this particular cultural moment in which we find ourselves after this last election cycle. Uh, from the feedback that I've received from a handful of you, uh, that was helpful to many of you. I'm grateful for that. Uh, it was challenging and frustrating to others of you. I'm also grateful for that. Uh, I appreciate when it creates some kind of response and it forces you to think about it and wrestle with it deeply. Um, so I'm grateful for, for all of that conversation. I always welcome that. Before we get into 1 Corinthians 14, um, I do need to apologize and to clarify something. So there are two um, big errors that we can make as Christians. Uh, Donald Trump is the president-elect of our country, and as such, one error would be not to love uh, and pray for him in that role in which he has been elected to. Uh, that's our clear call as Christians uh, from places like Romans 13, places like 1 Peter 2. That's one big error we can make would be not to love him and to pray for him. The other error would be, as Christians, to embrace Donald Trump in an unqualified manner that allows this association between him and evangelical Christianity to, to stand. Uh, one of the stats that was being disseminated after the election was that something like 80% of white evangelical Christians voted for Donald Trump. And so that's an association now that our society makes, and I've, I was arguing last week, and I went really hard after this error, it's, a, it's an error that we should not be okay with, we should not accept as, as Christians. So what I said, regardless of how you voted, was to demonstrate the nuance of your politics by your love, by showing and demonstrating love for, for one another. But here's where I missed on that. Encountering that second error so strongly, I fell into the first one. Uh, and I neglected to say anything about our need to love and to pray for Donald Trump or any other of our elected leaders. I think some of that is, is honestly coming from me. I have a place of struggling to do that, uh, and maybe some of you can resonate with that. I find in my own heart uh, difficulty doing that. I wasn't intentionally omitting that from the sermon last week because of that, but I think there's underneath the surface some, some connections there. It is and, and was my intention to pray for him, as we have prayed in this church for elected leaders regardless of political affiliation and party, but uh, especially in a text like 1 Corinthians 13, talking about love, uh, my omission was glaring and really ironic, actually, to not talk about the need we have to love Donald Trump as well. And so I want to apologize um, to all of you for that. Um, I want to set a better example in what it looks like to love and pray for our 
elected leaders. And I just would invite you to join in this pursuit with me of loving all people, uh, regardless of the direction and affiliation that they attach to their name um, politically. Okay? Thank you for, for hearing me on that and, and even giving me the space to, to, um, to ask your forgiveness in that. And today, though, we're moving into um, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, the last of three chapters where Paul has been talking a lot about spiritual gifts. What we've read so far, what we've learned so far, is that Christians are empowered with gifts and abilities from the Spirit of God. But what's happening here in the church in Corinth is that they are overestimating, not overestimating, overemphasizing this one particular spiritual gift of tongues. Tongues, we learn from these chapters as well as other places in the New Testament, tongues is the ability to speak in other languages. Uh, And sometimes those languages are other dialects spoken by other tribes and nations. Occasionally, it refers to a prayer language that's not in any kind of discernible human dialect. So there's a little bit of novelty to this particular gift. You can imagine, today I could only speak one language, yesterday I could only speak one language, today I can now speak two, three, or four languages. There's some novelty to that gift. And so it's understandable why the Corinthian church might overemphasize it, just as it's understandable why today different circles and tribes and churches overemphasize this gift as well. Paul has been countering their overemphasis in a couple different ways. And so in chapter 12, he says, it's actually not just about this one particular gift of tongues. There's a wide diversity of gifts, and you should desire not just the tongues gift, but all of those gifts. And then in chapter 13, he says, the only framework for using any of your spiritual gifts, be they tongues or any of the other ones, the only framework for those is love. And so now, in chapter 14, Paul continues this corrective in a couple ways. One, he's going to affirm that tongues are a real and good gift. He's going to thank God for the gift of tongues. And he's going, he's going to say that we should not forbid this, the use of this gift in the church when it's exercised appropriately. But then number two, he speaks a lot more, about, uh, a lot more broadly about the gathered worship of God's people. What should characterize gathered worship? That's really his focus in chapter 14. So tongues becomes the catalyst for this discussion, but as he gets into it, he really goes a lot broader than that and talks more about gathered worship. And so in keeping with his emphasis, we're going to talk likewise today more about gathered worship than we will about tongues. So I'm going to invite you now, we're going to read uh, chapter 14, starts on page 960. Listen now with open ears to this book that we love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? 
So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, so with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign for, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. God of mercy, you promise never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change and enable us to respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. So Paul here in this chapter gives us four pillars of gathered worship. Four pillars of gathered worship. We're going to look at least somewhat, at each of those today. Worship is edifying. Worship is intelligible. Worship is hospitable. And worship is orderly. 
Edifying, intelligible, hospitable, and orderly. So first, worship is edifying. Edify is a pretty archaic word. Uh, We don't use that word a lot, particularly outside of a church context. But it means to build up. Kind of like the word in our language, edifice, is another term for a building. To edify means to build up morally or spiritually. And throughout these chapters, Paul is making the case that spiritual gifts really are not ultimately about us. They're for the common good. They're for the building up of others. Here in chapter 14, he introduces, though, the difference between the spiritual gift of tongues and the spiritual gift of prophecy. And by prophecy, he's not primarily thinking foretelling the future. He means, as one scholar puts it, speech by which God calls his people to fidelity and faithfulness. That's prophecy. Speech by which God calls his people to fidelity and faithfulness. So prophecy also has this poignancy to it, this depth of insight. Prophecy is is words that cut right to the heart of the issue. It's a timely word that's given that really points people ultimately to the one true prophet, the greater prophet, who is Jesus Christ. What Paul says here is both tongues and prophecy are edifying. They are both valuable gifts that are empowered by the Spirit of God. But the distinction that Paul makes here is that tongues are primarily about edifying myself, whereas prophecy edifies the church. And I don't know what your background is, your experiences, your views of tongues, but here's a way to think about it that hopefully you can relate to uh, regardless of what your past experience or present experiences of that looks like. It is not wrong to edify yourself. Right? Any, of, any of us who participate in personal rhythms of worship, reading our Bible, praying, meditation, silence and solitude, other kinds of spiritual disciplines, these are personally edifying practices, and they are completely right and good. In fact, if we're trying to follow after Jesus and we're not doing something like that that's personally edifying us, building us up in God, we're missing something big. And that's kind of like what the spiritual gift of uninterpreted tongues is. That's the parallel Paul's drawing here. It's a kind of personal rhythm of worship that can be helpful in building your relationship with God. But the point here is that when the church gathers, it's meant to be more than a collection of individuals practicing their personal rhythms of worship. When the church gathers, it's actually meant to be a community, a real community of people that worship together. So as Will mentioned, we're in our third week in this new facility. When we were searching for a new space in which to gather, in which to be present in our community, why didn't we buy like a 737 and set it in the middle of a field somewhere and use that as our church? I mean, the seats are a lot comfier than the ones you're currently sitting in. If it's a new enough 737, every seat has its own screen, its own headphone jack. It's got its own climate control. We could all sit together in this repurposed airplane and have an individually customized worship experience. I could listen to the songs that I wanted to listen to. I could read the passage that I want to read. I could listen to the pastor I wanted to listen to about the topic I wanted to listen to. Right? And that sounds ridiculous. I bet you somebody will try this in the next decade. I would not be surprised if somebody tried this in the next decade. Why don't we do that, though? Because that's not actually gathered worship. That's just being an individual in the presence of other individuals, which is actually, sadly, uh, what the church can degenerate into when the emphasis is all about my gifts practiced in my way as I myself determine. But that's not God's design for the church. 
Right? God's Spirit gives us these gifts to make us interdependent on one another. So that we exist in community, we build one another up with our gifts, and then other people build us up with the gifts that we do not have. So when we gather together, the focus is always meant to be on the community and not the individual. Right? We are a community of individuals. Uh, being part of the church doesn't, doesn't eradicate our individuality. But when we gather together, the focus is on our community, not on the individual. So worship is edifying, and as much as possible, edifying for the entire community. That's Paul's first point here. Second, worship is intelligible. Uh, the real issue, the real problem that Paul's addressing here is not so much tongues itself as it is uninterpreted tongues. He says that several times here in this chapter. In order to build each other up, we have to be able to understand and to be understood by one another. And if we can't, otherwise, what Paul says is that we will relate to one another more like foreigners when we're actually supposed to relate to one another more like family. Uh, many of you have spent time overseas or you have friends or family members that have spent a substantial amount of time in a different country where they speak a different language. If you do, you probably have some great stories about how things get lost in translation when you don't speak the same language as another person. Uh, the pastor that I served under in Kansas City, he spent more than two decades of his life in Budapest, Hungary. So he had some fantastic stories about this. One of the ones that he told that I remember was that they were holding a baptism service there were some men and women who had come to faith in Christ, uh, and they came from families where no one else in their family was a Christian. But they were having this baptism service, and many of their family members, many of their friends, of the people who become Christians, were going to come to the service because they were intrigued. Uh, they were only maybe familiar with the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church or various cults. So at this service, um, one of the American missionaries who's leading this baptism service he baptizes uh, the men and women that are there, and then he's going to invite people in the church, like the members, the people of the church, to come up and to give these people a hug and to celebrate with them, right? Good celebration. It's a good thing that's worthy of celebration. But in Hungarian, which is a notoriously difficult language, apparently, for Americans to learn and to pronounce, uh, the word for hug is very similar, dangerously similar to the word for kill, and so he proceeded to invite church members to come up to the front and murder these newly baptized Christians. Right? And needless to say, if you're trying to differentiate yourself from a cult, that is not the kind of message that you want to convey to people. Uh, even when we do speak the same language as other people, right, things get lost in translation. Even with the people that we know the best, the people with whom we speak the most often, with whom we have the same catchphrases and inside jokes, we misinterpret and we misunderstand each other. Paul is saying here that if the point of gathered worship is not the individual but the community, then we want to do whatever there is to do that's in our power to do to both understand and to be understood, to cut down the, the chance, the opportunity that we will be misunderstood and that we'll misinterpret each other. To do that, as he says in verse 15, means that we engage in worship both with our spirits and our minds. Our spirits and our minds. And now depending on how you're wired, each of us leans more heavily on one of those than the other. Right? Some of us prefer to pray and sing with our minds. We love depth and precision of language. We love nuanced and complex concepts that are expressed in pre-written prayers or hymns. Others of us prefer to pray and sing more with our spirits, more emotively, more experientially. 
We prefer to celebrate simple truths and beautiful truths about God. And we prefer to wade through the complexity and the noise that's in our minds just by enjoying being in relationship with God. Paul has certain experiences, apparently, where communing with God bypasses his mind completely. It seems that he sometimes will speak in tongues without even understanding what he himself is saying. But that even though his mind isn't understanding what he's saying in that moment, that it's still personally edifying to him. Now, I have not personally experienced anything like that. But it perhaps is a little bit like experiencing a deep, inexplicable kind of peace in a moment where everything logical and rational in my mind is overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. I have days like that, and perhaps you do as well, where I, everything in my mind is hyper-fixated on fear and anxiety. And yet somehow, like an intruder out of left field, a sense of peace will come. Like it bypasses my mind completely. Maybe it's a little bit like that. In some mysterious way, maybe that's my spirit communing with God in a way that bypasses my mind. Whether or not we experience communion with God through the gift of tongues or any other rhythm of personal worship, what Paul says here, though, is that our practice in gathered worship must engage both mind and spirit. And so practically, what might that look like in the church? Practically, what might that entail? It means that, for one, our song lyrics, our prayers, our liturgy, our sermons, they should be deep enough to engage those who have been Christians for decades while being accessible enough to the person who became a Christian this morning. Right? It means knowing the people that we are in community with in this church so that we neither patronize others by underestimating their mental and spiritual capacity nor shame them by overestimating their mental and spiritual capacity. It means creating an environment or an atmosphere of gathered worship where uh, regardless of race, regardless of education or socioeconomic standing, people can both know and experience, know with their minds, experience with their souls, the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. And if that sounds difficult to create an atmosphere where that's happening, it's because it's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult to do that and to meet people where they are. It's why we rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit to do work that we possibly cannot do. But we want to make every effort, as much as it's in our power to do, to do exactly that. And so what I would invite you to do is to pray for, this is the, this is the task of leaders in your church. It's the task of elders. It's the task of musicians and liturgists and other men and women that plan our gathered worship. Pray for them. Be gracious to them. Offer them in loving ways feedback, constructive feedback that helps us pursue this desire we have to be intelligible in our worship. So worship is edifying. Worship is intelligible. Third, worship is hospitable. If you've been following along, you've probably noticed we've neglected an incredibly significant group of people. Paul as he's concerned about intelligibility, that seems to be more about men and women who are, who are already Christians. But then starting in verse 16, and then especially in verses 20 through 25, he shifts gears and he starts to talk a lot more about people who are not yet Christians, but people who are attending and participating in the gathered worship of the church. And so here's what we learn from Scripture on this matter. We learn that we should hope for, we should anticipate and we should be grateful when people who are not Christians come. 
There have been movements in the history of the church that don't believe this, that believe that gathered worship should be designed exclusively for Christians. And then to counter those movements, there are other movements that emerge that cater almost exclusively to non-Christians. And worship is designed with the non-Christian in mind to the point that it really is no longer edifying, it no longer builds up those who already are Christians. And the way that we operate as human beings is we get on that pendulum and back and forth we go. Catered exclusively to Christians, catered exclusively to non-Christians. But what Paul says here is what we're called to is hospitable worship. Hospitable worship. The meaning of hospitality throughout the New Testament is about the welcome that Christians extend to those who are not yet Christians. And that same attitude is not just what we're supposed to pursue in our own private homes, you know, practicing hospitality in our homes. It's not just about community outreach efforts when we do things in the neighborhood and in the region to serve and love and care for people. It applies to gathered worship as well. So what Paul says is Christians shouldn't speak in tongues without an interpreter because it's not hospitable, right? Its lack of intelligibility is off-putting, and it's a gigantic and unnecessary obstacle for people who aren't Christians. He says it really plainly. It makes Christians look like they are out of their minds, And there are times when, as Christians, to be faithful to Jesus, we will look like we are out of our minds. This is not one of those times that we have to do that. It's not a necessary obstacle, so we should blow up an unnecessary obstacle. Author named Tim Keller puts it this way. It cannot be missed that Paul directly tells a local congregation to adapt its worship because of the presence of unbelievers. It's a false dichotomy to insist that if we are seeking to please God— We must not ask what the unchurched feel or think about our worship. So this for us at Liberty Church, this is a huge value for us. This is why we explain parts of the liturgy as we go through them. This is why we explain the Lord's Supper every week, even when we ask non-Christians not to participate with us. This influences um, the way we preach. This influences our music. And we do all of that because God willing, this week, And next week and every week is a week where someone will be here who has never heard the good news of Jesus Christ before. Or maybe they have heard the good news of Jesus Christ before, but they've never really understood it. And they're here, and when they're here, they need to hear, and they need to understand it. If you've ever gone through one of our In Covenant classes, our membership classes here, this is what you'll read in some of the materials for that. We expect welcome and respect non-Christians in our worship gatherings with all their questions, objections, struggles, and doubts. We are determinedly conscious of and welcoming to non-Christians in our midst, seeking for comprehensibility at all times. The gospel makes us a community where Christians say, these are the people I want my non-Christian friends around. So I just want to ask you this, how are we doing? How are we doing with that? Is this a church where you would feel good, where you do feel good about bringing your non-Christian friends? If so, then that's great, and and praise God for that. That's what we're aiming for. That's what we hope. Not that we would dumb things down, not that we would entertain people, but that we would really be accessible, we'd really be hospitable to people who are not Christians. If this is not a place where you would feel good about bringing your non-Christian friends, then we need to know that. But I want to be really clear about this. I'm far less interested in your preferences or like the theories that you have read about this in an article somewhere. I am much more interested in the real human beings you know. That man or woman from work, that man or woman from your neighborhood. 
wherever else you get to connect with people, what about our gathered worship would be off-putting or not compelling to him or her? And if your non-Christian friends all seem to have the same preferences and opinions as you do, I'll probably get a little bit suspicious. If they all want to sing a certain artist more than others or whatever they're, if it starts to sound a little bit like you, I'll be a little bit suspicious about that. Now, let me, I also want to be clear about this. This is a call for all of us, not just the few people that help plan and design and, and arrange our gathered worship services here. All of us. So think deeply about how you personally can be more hospitable to people who aren't Christians. Think about the men and the women who aren't here yet, but who we hope are someday here with us and part of our church community. Pray for those men and women who aren't here yet, but who we hope are here someday. And when new people do come, and not just the first time, but the 21st time, the 51st time, consider what that experience is actually like for them. Consider what they actually experience and feel here when they come into this space. When I was in college, I went to TCU in Fort Worth. TCU was playing an away game at Tulane. So I went to New Orleans with a group of friends, and before the game that night, we had, we had some time, and so we explored the, the city of New Orleans. What none of us knew going into that weekend was that it was the same weekend of something called Southern Decadence, which is um, New Orleans Gay Pride Festival. Now, I have a handful of friends who are part of the LGBTQ community. I have friends who, who live that lifestyle, but I can't think of a single time in my life where I felt more out of place or unsure how to handle myself than walking into the downtown streets of New Orleans in the middle of a gay pride festival. No idea what to do or what to think or how to act or respond. That is how many people feel when they set foot inside a church building. Right? They might have some friends who are Christians, but they might feel unbelievably uncomfortable and out of place and have no idea how to handle themselves in a gathering of Christians. So let's be a church that cares about that and that helps people navigate the awkwardness and the discomfort that people feel in that. That's why you're going to hear me say things like, if you're an in-covenant member here, part of the ways we can practically be hospitable to people is to arrive early, park far away, and sit up closer to the front and closer to the middle of your section. Don't make people who are newer to this space crawl across your lap to find their seat or sit up at the very front where I'm like five feet away from them and, and, or park like a mile away. That's a practical way we can be hospitable to those who are not comfortable here. Another really practical way to welcome people is to use hospitable language. Right? Let's be a church that uses hospitable language and let's never become so enmeshed in Christian subculture that we use terms and phrases without explaining them that only make sense if you've been around the church for decades, right? So we, we shouldn't pray a hedge of protection around people. We should just pray for their protection. It's perfectly acceptable to just use normal words and not have to use a phrase like hedge of protection. I've been a Christian for a long time. I still am not exactly sure what traveling mercies are. I think, I think we mean that we're just praying for people, for God to care for them when they're away from home. Let's just pray it that way for people. That's a great way to use hospitable language. Or big theological words like justification, propitiation, the other Asians, sanctification. <laughs> hey, when they're in Scripture, we shouldn't shy away from them. We shouldn't apologize for them, but we must explain them. We must explain them. C.S. Lewis once remarked that if you can't explain something to an eight-year-old, then you really don't understand it yourself. So how often... Might we be covering up our own lack of understanding behind a facade of words and phrases that we just regurgitate back and forth to each other? 
Let me say this to you. If you are a Christian, you don't have to pretend that you understand to be welcomed here. You don't have to pretend you to understand to be welcomed here. How much more is that true if you're not a Christian? You don't have to pretend to be welcomed here. If you're here and you're not a Christian, then let me also say this. I am incredibly interested in what you think and what you experience in this church. What makes you feel welcome here? What makes you feel unwelcome? Because for all of our attempts to be hospitable, here's the reality. Hospitality is always a dialogue and never a monologue. Hospitality is always a dialogue and not a monologue. And too often, churches create a philosophy of hospitality that's based on a monologue or just by reading best practices of what other churches are doing, regardless of whether that actually connects with the people that live in our own backyard. So it's not every day that someone will offer to buy you a cup of coffee or to buy you a beer, to sit down with you, and to listen about how ridiculous you think they are. But that's the offer that I'm making to you. Please take me up on that. If you're here, you're not a Christian, I would love to sit down with you and hear what is welcoming versus what is unwelcoming about this church. Just so we don't miss this, and just so there's never any ambiguity about this, what is our hope for men and women who don't know Christ, who join in gathered worship with us? Paul says it in verses 24 and 25. If an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Here's what we want. The church is meant to be a place where everyone who enters encounters the living God. Christian or not, encountering the living God is not a comfortable or convenient experience. It's a convicting experience. It is glimpsing the holiness of God, and it is then being wrecked by how far short we fall of that. But it is then letting God lift your head so that we might see Jesus. And seeing Jesus, seeing his death and his resurrection, and believing that that is the power of God for our salvation— We are utterly transformed to the point where life no longer makes sense anymore apart from following him. So hospitality is not primarily about comfort. It's about comprehension. And comprehension so that the living God might do what the living God does, which is cut to the heart and expose the folly of our lives apart from him and then graciously offer us his love and his forgiveness and his reconciliation. Lastly, briefly, worship is orderly. The last part of this chapter describes orderly worship. And so Paul says, when the church gathers, you don't have multiple people speak at the same time. You don't have, uh, as spiritual gifts, they're not uncontrollable bursts of frenzied speech and activity. That's not what spiritual gifts are. As verse 32 says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, if God gives you, if these are gifts, if God gives you certain spiritual gifts, he also gives with it the self-control to exercise those gifts in a way that is edifying, intelligible, and hospitable. Quick note on verses 34 and 35, because you wish I skipped over them, and I kind of wish I skipped over them too, (laughs) about women being silent in churches. It's not clear what exactly we are meant to make of these words, but there are really a few points, I think, that are worth making here. In this same letter, a few chapters earlier, Paul has given some guidelines for women who pray and prophesy in the church. So what he says here can't be a complete prohibition. 
In fact, apart from these couple verses, the overwhelming emphasis of Paul's teaching here is to encourage the practice of the unity and diversity of spiritual gifts among all of God's people, male and female. So it's possible, probable even, that Paul is referring back to verse 29 when he says this about, and he's prohibiting women from weighing what is said. Right, the context of all of this is orderly worship. And what we read here, what we read in other parts of the New Testament, is that part of God's good and orderly design is that men and women are completely equal in worth and value. They're both given substantial, valuable, necessary gifts that are, that are, that are, um, that you, you have to have. They're irreplaceable for the good and the building up of the church. But we're given different roles and different responsibilities with those gifts. One of the roles and responsibilities given to men specifically is that they are called to be the servant sacrificial leaders in the church and in the home. And so it would be men who serve as elders would be the ones weighing what is said by people in the church. That's probably what Paul is referring to when he says this. But whatever verses 34 and 35 mean, don't allow them to override what Paul is already teaching here. Don't allow them to diminish or dismiss in any way the essential role that spiritually gifted women play in the church. And I just would speak to the women for just a moment here this morning. Women, we need your gifts. So please don't hide. Please don't withhold those gifts. And please don't see your gifts as any less valuable or important as the gifts that God gives to men. In closing, let me just ask this. Why is this order a good thing? If God is the God of freedom, doesn't this order stifle that? Doesn't this order stifle the freedom that we're called to experience and enjoy? Well, it can, and it often does, and we need to be really cautious about that. But I love the way that a pastor named Stephen Um puts this. He said, freedom for the sake of freedom is anarchy. Order for the sake of order is tyranny. But order for the sake of freedom is liberty. So more than anything, worship is meant to reflect the very nature and character of God himself. And verse 33 says it, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God does not turn us loose to pursue autonomous freedom. Nor is he a tyrannical God who is all about control and order simply for the sake of control and order. No, God brings order for the sake of real freedom. He brings order out of the nothingness that existed before the world began. He brings peace into the turmoil of our anarchy as we rebel against him. To borrow imagery from the psalmist, he sets boundaries, but he sets those boundaries in pleasant places so that we might receive a beautiful inheritance. Right? This is what we need. This is what is truly good for us. Not anarchy, not tyranny, liberty, freedom. And all of these ways that we are called to worship, edifying, intelligible, hospitable, and orderly, all of them find their shape and find their meaning in God himself. This is the God who orders the universe for the sake of our freedom. This is the God who uses his infinite power to edify you and me, to build us up into a spiritual house that we might be a place where he himself dwells with us. This is the God who reveals himself intelligibly and hospitably. Right? God does not demand that we rise to his level. He comes down to ours. He condescends to us so that we might perceive and understand and experience his welcome of the gospel through Jesus Christ. 
and Jesus coming to earth, which we're going to celebrate now for the next five weeks in the season of Advent together, that is the ultimate act of God's hospitality and intelligibility. Jesus came to us. So as God has been edifying, intelligible, hospitable, and orderly for the sake of our salvation, the only fitting way to worship and honor him is with a worship that is edifying, intelligible, hospitable, and orderly. So may we be people who worship well when we gather. And every time that we gather, may it be said of us, as it was said of the Corinthians, or at least Paul's hope for the Corinthians, that God is really among us. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we do pray that people who come to this space, whether Christians or not, that every week when we gather, it would be, it would be so obvious that you dwell among us, that your presence is among us, and not just in a building, but in us as your people. We pray that we would, in our gathered worship, that we would build one another up. We pray that we would speak and use uh, different elements of our service that are intelligible, that really serve the building up of one another. Pray we'd be hospitable to those who don't currently know you and follow after you, Jesus. That we might really open up our doors, open up our lives, and be welcoming. And we pray that we would see that you have done all of these things for us. You have designed and built a world for our good, and that is our hope and our salvation. So as we come to this table and we remember and we celebrate this morning that you have given us yourself, that you have come to us, as we rejoice in your hospitality, may we offer it to others. We pray all this in your name. Amen. come now to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and it is truly a celebration.